This is Wednesday's Women, hosted by Caitlin and Taylor. We invite you to join us in a candid conversation about the roles of women in political organizing and beyond as we celebrate the centennial celebration of the 19th Amendment. We hope that you find this episode educational, entertaining, and the women we discuss inspiring. If you like what you hear, subscribe and share. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Wednesday's Women. I'm Caitlin. I'm covered in acne because maskne is a real thing. We love a pandemic. Um, and today we're going to continue on our conversation about women and political organizing, focusing this month on Native American history. Um, so today we are talking about Leanne Betusamasaki Simpson. If that's not how you say her middle name, don't at me. We've tried, we've discussed, this is what we're going with, Leanne. And people say, like, you should look it up, but I'll literally look it up, like, five minutes before we record, and then I get to it, and I'm like, oh, how did they say that? Um, it sounds okay. Yeah. So, looking it up won't help. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm going to call her Leanne for the majority of this podcast for the simple fact that Leanne is a very easy word to say. I also think it's a really cute name. I knew a girl named Leanne, and I always wanted to be named Leanne. Yeah. So, we will be talking about her and her history today. So, Leanne was born and raised in Wingham, Ontario, which is in Canada, if you are not aware of your geography, um, by her Nishinaabeg. Nishinaabeg? I think so. Nishinaabeg mother whose name was Diane Simpson, and her father, Barry Simpson, who is of Scottish ancestry. Um, she is an off-reserve member of Elderville First Nation, and her grandmother, Audrey Williamson, was actually born in Elderville First Nation. So having been born and raised in a Chris Christian traditional uh family through the United Church of Canada. Simpson and her extended family have since left the church and have reclaimed Nishinaabeg modalities of spiritual expression. Um, and as a young woman, she immersed herself in her cultural traditions by connecting with Northern Nishinaabeg elders in a traditional community. So there she immersed herself, um, her immersion facilitated a linguistic, cultural and spiritual reconnection that she had not had previously in her life despite her family's uh, previous connection, really. Um, her work is the result of a journey to reconnect to an ancestral homeland and traditions that she was disconnected from as a child and youth living off the reserve, which I think is really interesting because I think there are a lot of people that um, feel disconnected from their ancestry in a lot of ways. And so it's really interesting to see somebody who reconnected with it so uh, extensively. Yeah. I do think that's really impressive. I do just want to say some of the women we've covered in Native American Heritage Month, we don't have the most information on their personal life. And I guess I never thought about like how much information you get on someone after they die. But like, it just feels weird when they're a real person to be like, oh, they were married to this person and then they got a divorce and then they married this person because like they're still around and can hear you. So if you're wondering why there's not as much information on their personal lives, it's just that they don't put a whole lot out there and no one's forcing them to because they aren't dead. And if they're not somebody like 
a royal member of the like in England or they're not somebody who's uh like the president there isn't they, tabloids don't deep dive as much into every nit they don't nitpick their personal lives like they would other otherwise with another person so yeah and the people we've covered before they certainly weren't famous and they certainly didn't have publications out there about themselves so you just you learn a lot a lot more after someone dies um obviously her reconnection to her heritage isn't the only thing that has gotten her a spot on this podcast she was very active in the idle no more protests that started around 2012 um, I Don't Know More is a Canadian protest movement in which they protest and demonstrate against unfair Canadian Indigenous treaty laws. Um, and so that still goes on today and she's still an active member, but she was very active at the beginning of the protest. She's also active in Indigenous resistance and resurgence, decolonization, gender-based violence, and the protection protection of indigenous homelands. Her activism is expressed not only artistically and with her presence at protests, but also academically. She is very respected in terms of indigenous research and indigenous publications. She finds that movements such as Idle No More are most powerful when composed of a collective of community organizers, artists, writers, academics, and speakers. Um, that they can be then mobilized through a grassroots bottom-up approach and typically that creates more buy-in among protesters and just activists they don't have to be protesting they could just be creating a community garden but you want people of various skills and various backgrounds to buy investment into your movement during the idle no more protests she became a key figure in the movement after she dispersed an article titled What Idle No More Means to Me. This was one of her more famous writing pieces, but it certainly wasn't her only writing piece. In the piece, Simpson articulated the importance of defending indigenous land and lifeways by emphasizing the interconnected relationality of indigenous worldviews as intimately in connection with the land base. Simpson articulates that the potential futurity of Idle No More was arrested or halted by tribal infighting regarding allocation of extracted resources. Um, it's understandable that this infighting occurred because obviously tribes tend to be more self-sustaining than other communities and to do that you have to have a decent amount of economic power and so if there is any financial contribution to it, I suppose you could say. They obviously would want their tribe to receive a good portion of it to ensure the sustainability. Um, what actually happens though is this sidetracks your movement because you're not putting your full force into the movement. You are instead focusing on how you're benefiting and so it draws the movement away from its purpose and towards personal goals, which isn't great for any movement, but it's not only occurring in indigenous movements, it happens in everything. Even Black Lives Matter has seen people try to co-opt the movement for their own gain, which is disgusting, quite frankly. 
Simpson explains that tribal peoples are in a double bind in that addressing the material needs of crushing poverty necessitates partition, participation in the very extractivist system that caused the poverty. And so um, extractivism is, activist, is activism that is rooted in a resistance to extraction of natural resources. And so that's very common among indigenous groups because typically the land they occupy has been well preserved. And so there are a lot of trees on their reservations or they have a large oil supply because they're not constantly using it. And so the United States, Canada, any country with indigenous populations, Hawaii, I know Hawaii is not a country, it's a state, but it has a large indigenous population. I swear I'm not that bad at geography. Um, they all see this issue where people want to extract the resources and the indigenous populations obviously don't appreciate that. And so Simpson critiques environmental reforms that, opter that operate from extraction philosophies and explains that the solutions to impending environmental collapse can't be based in extraction methodologies. Specifically, she critiques the ways in which governments and corporations' environmental reforms extract pieces of indigenous knowledge in the search for sustainable solutions, but lack the cultural context and the efforts they have used to reinforce their, their extraction, extractivist mentality. Yeah, and I and think so this is go ahead. Go ahead. I was just gonna say, like, I think it's all really important that we like recognize uh, the difference between like necessity and like desire, like the necessity of those lands for resources is lower than the necessity uh, of like how little land is left and preserved for them and what is really theirs because we've taken so like um westernism has westernism that's not a word westernizing i think it's westernization yes westernization has taken so much and so like i just really hate the idea of what well, we need to use you know we need this stuff it's like you don't need it you want it we could do other and, things. Yes, and I think America, especially obviously any country with an indigenous population is guilty of this in some form, um, but America is really bad with the tradition of Thanksgiving. So if you're not American, Thanksgiving now has nothing to do with how it started. Now it's just like a big meal for your family and you say what you're thankful for. The origin story, as you know, if you grew up in an American public education system where you dressed up like Indians and pilgrims and recreated the first Thanksgiving, the when colonizers would come over to America, they were grotesquely unprepared for what they found. And so they couldn't farm in the land because it was different than their land and they were sort of unaware of the predators they would face. And so they worked with indigenous peoples. And they were just sick as hell. Like indigenous tribes had already recognized different types of like ways of combating the Ill like illnesses that were like just common in the area and stuff. And so people were li like dying from that and from 
just malnourishment and everything else. So yeah, the it, it's really kind of disheartening that without the Native Americans, westernization wouldn't have happened. And despite that fact, only a few years later, the Native Americans were retaliated against. They were, and I feel like it's not just the story of Thanksgiving that gives this idea that indigenous people should be helping us. There's also the story of Lewis and Clark where they relied upon indigenous people to complete their task. And so it has created this idea that we should be working together. And while I feel that we should, I feel that we tend to make it seem like the colonizers were giving more than what they actually were. Colonizers had very little to give the native, um, the indigenous people. Every now and then I slip up and say Native American and I don't like that. <laughs> I prefer indigenous. I guess it's up to what everyone prefers, but they really didn't contribute a whole lot to indigenous peoples. They really just brought firearms, which I would argue isn't a great contribution when they already had successful hunting techniques. Well, and two, they brought uh, the STDs. Oh, they did bring a lot of STDs and a lot of just general illness. They were the original no-maskers and anti-vaxxers. Um, but yeah, they were just like sickly, hella sickly. Yeah. Um, Simpson says that capitalism and colonialism work sort of hand in hand, which I would agree with. And because of this, extractive techniques are born from capitalism and the use of resources in a detrimental way, which I completely agree with. Yeah. Another thing that she was very, uh, very strong proponent of was indigenous resurgence, which um, she suggested was an alternative ideology, which focused on rebuilding indigenous nationalhood, nationhood, um, using indigenous intelligence and local engagement with land and community to foster this type of resurgence, which I think is really interesting. Uh, her philosophy is grounded in an indigenous perspective and is focused not on a return to the past, but on bringing traditional ways of living into current or into the collective future, which I think is really important because um, living in the past, I don't think is a sustainable way of keeping things alive. That's why um, if we do not try to include different types of traditions or diff for example, like if we didn't switch to, I'm not Catholic, nor like a practicing go to church type of religious person. But like, if you didn't do the thing now where they have the wafers, like the crackers for communion, would they still do communion if people were still being forced to make bread and stuff? It's like that kind of, like, is it easier to cling to your previous traditions or reform them to fit into your new mold so that way the idea of the tradition lives on and like that, that sense of community and sense of past is able to be continued, which is why I think that her philosophy and this indigenous resurgence was really, um, really a strong perspective on the idea of being connected to your roots. Um, I, sorry, I am of the belief, I think we should keep some of our traditions. Our family has traditions. 
I think they're very important, but I think keeping your traditions, you can do that and not get stuck in the past. And I think my personal belief is if the past were that great, we would not have come to the future. We wouldn't have worked on improvements. And so obviously some improvements aren't for the best. You know, I don't think that mass producing different things is the way to go. I don't think that cheap capitalistic single use items are great. I prefer reusable to single use plastic. Obviously I'm human and I have bought a single use plastic water bottle. So I think if the past were truly that great, we wouldn't have improved. And I think sometimes people get hung up on wanting the traditions and the nostalgia that the past brings, but not realizing how much they would have to give up to go to the past. I agree. Yep, I think that's a great point. Um, so uh, Leanne, she articulated the potential of a collective future as one necessarily built absent the exploitation of the earth and absent the ongoing acts of aggression against black and indigenous people, which I think is a very um, inspiring idea of seeing how the world could be. Um, she derives the inspiration from Black Lives Matter, No DAP, DAPL, and the White Earthland Recovery Project, um, which I think is pretty obvious when you see uh, her ideals and once for her community and for the world's perspective on indigenous living. Uh, I think you can really see those ties to those other movements. Um, Simpson's philosophy of indigenous resurgence remains focused on reviving their um, traditional ontologies through collective epistemic, epistemic, pedagogic, mm -hmm. and creative decolonization. Pretty cool. Um, such a resurgence must remain focused on bringing traditional life ways into the present, but enriched with an understanding that indigenous ways of being are rooted in a fluid fluidity that lends themselves to future applications, which I think if done properly and we, if they use those types of ideals, they will be able to create a long lasting effect that will continue their tradition further than if they did it any other way. Yes. And I wish so much that I was going into secondary education, secondary education, uh, into middle or high school education so that I could be a social studies teacher. And during like that whole, this week before Thanksgiving is a joke session that we could just talk about like impressive Native Americans and how they have worked on decolonization because like 100%, I didn't know the awful things that like colonizers did to the indigenous people until I was a junior in high school and took an AP US history course. And I will say a portion of that is on me because I never sought that information out because it felt like it wasn't relevant to me. But then like we talked about it and I'm like, my whole education has been a lie because I thought like we were cool. I thought we were friends. And like our colonizers were bullies. 100%. Our history is so whitewashed and so written in the perspective of against the truth, I would say. That's why my fiance he is. Yeah. My fiance is going into secondary education, social studies. He's very passionate about this topic, actually. So I'm really, I really wish I could be a fly on the wall whenever he starts 
providing that kind of information to students in the future because I think it's mm -hmm. really a useful piece of information that people don't get normally unless they go forth looking at history as a passion or uh, education or uh, and I mean, realistically, like most people aren't going to like exactly. a majority of people in America feel like indigenous colonizer relationships are not important to them. Well, and something I was going to bring up. So like you said about using the word Native American, I went to a high school where we are our, uh, our, what do we call it? Mascot is a, in, is a Native American, but they called them... Mm the Indian was what it was called and it was the warrior because we are the West Branch Warriors is what my school is called and so like our our symbol is a arrowhead with the um Native American with the headdress on it on them that that's my so I and my school specifically did not do a good job in explaining all those things I went to three schools throughout my life. I started at Mohawk Elementary and we were the Mohawk Warriors named after the Mohawk tribe that had occupied that land. Um, and it's like a big thing around me to go to farmer's fields after they up, like after they turn the earth and look for arrowheads because tribes were so common in this area. Um, then I was a New Wilmington Greyhound, which is less offensive you know maybe the dogs are upset about it but I've never heard that so then I was a Sharpsville Blue Devil that being said there were several schools around us who were warriors or um some play on indigenous people including the West Middlesex Big Reds who their mascot was an Indian chief in full headdress. And when I was a child and you were talking about indigenous peoples, they called them casino Indians and quick mart Indians to differentiate from India and like on a reserve. So like there are definitely issues that have clung to us. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think, I think it's important to acknowledge that you were wrong. And I don't think you can excuse the ways you were wrong, but I think it's okay to say I was uninformed and I am doing better now. I think there's nothing wrong with saying I have learned. I agree. Back to <laughs> Leanne Simpson. She is not only an activist as far as land, she is also huge with Indigenous culture, including Indigenous feminism, which I think is great. I love that. As an Indigenous feminist, Simpson believes that the, the decolonial work of resurgence necessitates the work of decolonizing heteropatriarchy from Indigenous movements. Yes. Can we get that on a shirt? Women were not treated as less than men in America until the colonizers came. And then they were just like, oh, you're right. They're less than. Yes, bring back the women have the same standing as men. I love that. In particular, Simpson understands the centering of CIS gendered men as a 
holdover from colonial movements and Western frameworks of heteropatriarchal dominance. She is right. She is correct. Dismantling heteronormative frameworks is key to Simpson's projects and thus centers on indigenous feminist and queer centered approaches. She wrote an article called Queering Resurgence. And in that article, she approaches mothering and guiding her children through a decolonial de perspective that challenges heteropatriarchy, heteronormativity, and the exclusion of queer indigenous peoples. We have to quit excluding people of color from our history. Additionally, we have to quit excluding LGBT plus members from our history. You cannot whitewash them. You cannot straightwash them. That is not okay. And I love that she's speaking up on this because I think that sometimes in movements, LGBT members can be pushed to the back burner because it's seen as them having rights. And so now you can get married and you can't be arrested simply for being a member of the LGBT community. And so I love that she is addressing both of these at the same time because I don't think they should ever be in competition with each other. Agree. As part of reconfiguring Indigenous people's sovereignty, resurgence means ensuring queer Indigenous members are part of the process of rebuilding the Indigenous community and that they should have a say in how their community is built and run. And I think that's amazing. I love it. Yeah. So like we already talked about, we've mentioned a couple of different things that she's written throughout um, her activi activist work. Um, so now I just wanted to focus a little bit on her actual writing career. So her work breaks open the intersections between politics, story, and song. Um, so that brings audiences into a rich and layered world of sound, light, and sovereign creativity. So it's a really great way of reaching people through a, a lot of different uh, parts, almost kind of like how to mu a musical can break through and reach people in a, in a majority of ways. Um, she was the author, is the author of five nonfiction books, including mm -hmm. The Ancient of Being Wrong, Accident of Being Wrong. No, not wrong. Oh my God. I'm going to start, I'm going to start that whole sentence over. I like how I included wrong in that a lot though, because <laughs> I'm wrong. Leanne is the author of five nonfiction books, including This Accident of Being Lost, which won the McEwen Mac University Book of the Year. Um, she was the finalist for the Rogers Writers Trust Fiction Prize and the Trillium Book Award um, and was long listed for the CBC Canada Reads. Uh, she was also named a best book, this was named a best book of the year by the Globe and Mail, the National Post and the Quill Inquirer. Another book she wrote was Dancing on Our Turtle's Back, which is uh, stories of Nashnabeg recreation, resurgence, and new emergence. Um, and finally, there was a book that was called um, As We Have Always Done, Indigenous Freedom Through Radical Resistance, which was published through the University of Minnesota Press in 2017. And that publication was awarded Best Subsequent Book by the Native American and Indigenous Studies Association. So all very good reads, all pushing her causes and her ideas on um, making indigenous, indigenous traditions uh, well-known and brought forth in our current state of society. So for our discussion questions today, what are your thoughts on I don't know more and extra activism?
I think that it's really, really interesting. And I wish we saw more uh, grassroots movements and activist groups using similar uh, like theories. I don't, they're not theories, words. But like methods or techniques. Yeah, techniques, that's the word I'm looking for. I think that they, they are doing a really good job in pushing their ideas in a certain way that make it a lot not easier to understand like their purpose, but it makes their purpose very um, personable in a way that I think would fit with a lot of other activist groups as well that could make them also appear more personable. I liked her, how she advocated for different techniques. As an economics student, I was really impressed with her ties between colonialism and capitalism and then the ties between those and extractivism and I think it's really important to say I think it's really important to say that because we recognize colonialism and capitalism is ineffective and in some parts wrong and so you're tying that in with those things and saying it's wrong to go to people who have respected the earth they lived on and say hey we tore all of our trees down, so now we need some of yours. Yeah. And so I just like the economic implications of saying that extractivism is part of capitalism in its nature. Yeah, I agree. So discussion question number two. Simpson has used a variety of mediums to portray her message. Which of them do you think was the most effective? I'm going to say her music career is probably the most effective, which we didn't talk a whole lot about here. Um, but I think music is probably one of the most accessible ways to reach people because obviously books are incredible and activism is incredible, but most people have a radio. Most people have auditory comprehension so they can understand what they're hearing. Um, and so I think you can just reach the most people that way. And they're also more likely to appreciate a song and spread a song than they are perhaps a book or a news article about a movement. Yeah, you actually took the point right out of my mouth, which was that I was gonna say, um, especially with um, the fact that most people have a fifth grade or lower educational reading level and comprehension level. I feel like music is a really great way of reaching people because most people have much better auditory comprehension. Um, but I also just, I really appreciated how she combined methods because even if you do have um, reading and auditory comprehension that are both like well adapted and thorough, you you recognize things different parts of your brain think about things differently as it's presented in different methods so i think it she just did a really good job making sure her message was heard in a multitude of ways i know that doesn't i guess my agreement is auditory so the song but i do think it's worth mentioning again that the combination really is important and finally which native american woman was your favorite to discuss so I'm kind of going back and forth between uh, Winona and Cherise because I like them both a lot. 
I think I'm. I think I'm leaning towards Charisse though, just because her. I like seeing women being the first at things. So like first, uh, one of the first two women elected to Congress, as well as um, she was one of the first people that were openly LGBT elected to Congress. So even though I know like, but it does, like I was gonna say, it doesn't take us too much to be the first, but yes, it does. It does take a lot to be the first because you have to overcome obstacles that you normally wouldn't see. So yeah, I think I'm gonna go with Sharice with Winona as a close second. Interesting. I was thinking you would pick Winona. So that's, that's interesting. I, as someone who closely follows women in politics, specifically women in elected positions, though that's not the only way to be involved in politics, I'm just always intrigued with people who go for elective, elected positions because the thought scares me because every private part of your life instantly becomes public. And so like that sort of scares me. And so I'm always intrigued by people who do it. And so I think I'm gonna go with Deb Holland just because you went with Sharice and I was torn between the two of them. Obviously this isn't a competition between the four women. They all accomplished great and impressive things in their own ways. It was just a fun way to wrap up Native American Heritage Month to just talk about our favorite women to discuss. Yeah. I just, I truly appreciate that they are the first Deb and Sharice in Congress and I recognize the hardships you can face. And I'm just always astounded by people who choose to run for elected positions. Oh. When Tree used to talk about running for like state, state seats, I was always like, oh my God, they'll know like every private aspect of your life. And like, I don't like that. As someone who doesn't like to share intimate things, I don't like that. <laughs> well, and I think but, it's so, because you're like, with your, your close friends or your family and things, sometimes you like to keep your political beliefs close to your chest because we don't want anyone to be mad at you or to feel any different about you based on how you think about certain things. And you don't have that privilege anymore as a member of an elected body because you have to show what you think in a public forum. And you're not just public during the time that you run, like your information is out there forever. When you're going for a job, when you move to a new town, like or new it's out there. Yeah. And so I'm just always intrigued. And I think it was just really fun to discuss I'm torn about what I was about to say. I was going to say it was really fun to be able to discuss like a first happening in our lifetime, but then I was like, no, actually I'm mad that the first happened in our lifetime. Yeah. So it was interesting to discuss a first that we both remember. Yeah, I agree. It was also just, sorry. You're good. It was also just kind of fun to talk about people who are still with us and who are still accomplishing things. Yeah. Because sometimes I'm like, mm, they're all dead. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So who are we talking about next week? Next week, we will be covering Septima Poinsett Clark. 
She was an African-American educator and civil rights activist. We worked incredibly hard this year to get people registered to vote and to make sure they were educated on how to get to the ballot box. But it's also incredibly important to educate people on what to do once you're at the ballot box. Don't just pick names because they look cool or because you think the guy is cute. You should actually be invested in the candidates you're choosing. And Septima Clark did a huge amount of work to develop literacy and citizenship workshops that ended up playing a huge role in the drive for voting rights and civil rights for African-Americans during the civil rights movements. So during that time, there was actually literacy requirements in some states where you had to be able to read and write at a certain level, which I struggle with because even if you can't comprehend a novel, you can still say, oh, I heard this person on the radio talking about their beliefs. This is who I'm voting for. Because let's be realistic, most people who can read aren't doing that much research on their candidates. Oh, yeah. They're saying this person looks like me or this person said they would give me money off my taxes. That's what I'm voting for. And so I think literacy requirements were stupid. And I appreciate that Clark recognized this. And instead of just attacking the literacy laws, she came up with ways to circumvent them. Yeah, I agree. I think it's really important too, just with the fact that we have a lot of people that are um, not English speakers and also the fact that we have people that have medical uh, like medical issues that prevent them from, even if they have, um, like they have different types of aphasia is what it's called. So either you have expressive or, uh, oh, I can't think of the other one. Expressive is whenever you can't express what you're thinking, but then there's another type of aphasia where you can't comprehend what you're reading or what people are saying to you. Um, so sometimes like it's important for them to have opportunities to really look at different ways of understanding candidates and things because otherwise they also have issues trying to get their voices heard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this has been Wednesday's Woman. Thanks everyone for coming and watching us again today. We will see you all next week. Make sure you have a happy turkey day um, and try not to think too much about the issues that plague us. Don't drift into existential dread just yet. Oh, don't do it. We still got 2021 to get to. Oh my God, it's still 2020. This has been Wednesday's Women, sponsored by the Clarion University CU Engaged Coalition. The thoughts and ideas presented in this podcast are meant to be for entertainment purposes first and foremost. And we do not claim to be experts in any field. As always, thanks for listening and make sure you go out and register to vote.